Hey everyone, this is Emily. Welcome to the Read More Podcast. Before we get started, I just want to issue a brief content warning. This episode includes discussions of sensitive subject matter, which may be psychologically triggering for some listeners. These topics include rape, sexual assault, domestic abuse, and racism. If you think listening to talks about those sensitive topics might cause you any psychological distress, please feel free to skip this episode, and we will be happy to welcome you back next week. With that, let's go ahead and get the episode started. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Read More podcast. We are on episode seven. Wow. Episode seven of our podcast. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Emily Caroline Moore. I'm a reader, I'm a writer, and I'm a podcaster. And always, or as always, I can't even talk. Like, my... my, But as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, English teacher and reader extraordinaire. See if I can get this right. My mom. There we go. Got it. Hey, everybody. This is Ann Ferguson Stancil, and I am indeed Emily's mom and not responsible for the fact that she cannot speak clearly today. However, um, I am a reader. I am not a writer. I am an English teacher of 23 years. And so I've spent a little bit of time in books and tend to have opinions about them. And um, so anyway, this morning we are talking about banned books, our favorite banned books, why they were banned, and why you should give them a read. Oh, yes, our favorite banned books. I would also like to point out, it is not morning in either of the places where we live. So. Oh, indeed it is not. (laughs) Who's messing up now? (laughs) But, yes, this afternoon... And not it even is. early afternoon. It's in fact late in the day. <laughs> we are going to be talking about our favorite banned and challenged books. And I'll go over in just a few minutes what that means and what the difference is between banned and challenged. But uh, before we get into that, we have to start out the way we always start out. And that is with the most important question. Mom, what are you reading? Oh, I'm so excited to tell you about my current read because it is one of my favorites. Every now and then you just have to go back and revisit something that makes you happy. And so this week I picked up a copy of Persuasion by Jane Austen. And so many people think about Jane Austen and the first thing that if they think about Jane Austen at all, and apparently many people do, um, they think about Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility. More than likely because those have been adapted into um, miniseries and movies and over the years with varying degrees of success and and people immediately think of those. But Persuasion is one of the last books that Jane Austen wrote. It's somewhat autobiographical. Um, the main character is a young woman named Anne Elliot, who um, she rejects a a suitor 
when she is quite young and regrets it, but is thrown into an opportunity for a second chance. And I think that's the thing that really makes me happy about persuasions other than Jane Austen's writing, which I have a tendency when I read her to talk like her, kind of do the whole Emma Thompson Golden Globe speech sort of thing. Um, but anyway, this idea of the second chance that most things that are broken can be fixed. And this is one of them. So persuasion by Jane Austen is just a favorite and I'm enjoying it so much. So Emily, what are you reading? I am also excited to talk about what I'm reading today, though. I probably won't discuss it with such passion um, because it's just a fun, fun little read. <laughs> um, but I am currently reading Royal Assassin by Robin Hobb. It is the second book in the Farseer trilogy, which I recommended to you in our, ep our episode last week um, when we were talking about book series. Right. It's the second one in the trilogy. It's a continuation of the story. Um, the Farseer trilogy is just a happy, easy fantasy trilogy. There's a young boy. He's orphaned. He has innate magical abilities that he has to hone over a period of time. There's, you know, a, a mentor figure that helps him. He's trained in the assassin arts. There's a lot of political intrigue and it's just good old fashioned fantasy fun. So I am enjoying that one. Um, that's Royal Assassin by Robin Hobb. To go back to Persuasion, I would like to point out that you texted me not uh, a few days ago, telling me that I share a birthday with Anne Elliot, the main character of Persuasion. We are 199 years apart. Yes, August the 9th. And I seem to remember from my text that you were did not seem to be appropriately awed by the fact that I managed to birth you on the birthday of one of Jane Austen's heroines and, and I was a little I was a little taken aback by the fact that you were not bowled over by that. You know, I, I have the transcript here and I said, oh lovely, smiley face. You said she's the heroine. You should be thrilled exclamation point. I responded with, I said it was lovely. And you said, I could hear your tone. I'm not sure you were properly impressed that I managed to birth you on the same day as Anne Elliot's birthday. The links I go to as a mother. <laughs> so. Well, no, no one can ever accuse me of not trying my best. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to try our best to talk about <laughs> our favorite banned and challenged books today. Um, so I have three books that I'm going to be talking about. You have three books that you're going to be talk about, talking about. And all of these are books that at some point in history were either completely banned, usually from school curricula, classrooms, and or libraries, or they were challenged, meaning that it was requested that these books be removed from a library or a classroom by a censor, right? So most of these books are now, I think all of them actually, are now celebrated works of literature and can usually be found on summer reading lists. But we'll be talking about why the books were originally thought to be offensive or inappropriate or distasteful and why we think that they are wonderful reads for those with rebellious spirits or those who want to 
think about things differently, those who want to challenge the status quo. So, do you want to go ahead and kick us off with your first favorite book? Yes. And challenged book? This this book is probably going to be maybe a little obscure for some folks, although I've taught it uh, many times, particularly to 10th graders. This is The Awakening by Kate Chopin. Um, A lot of people are familiar with Kate Chopin from her short story, The Story of an Hour, which appears in lots of textbooks and many anthologies, and she wrote a collection of short stories um, in the late 1800s. The Awakening is a book about uh, protagonist Edna Pontellier of New Orleans. She is a well-to-do mother and wife who rejects conventional marriage and wants to live her life basically going down her own path. Uh, the reason that this book was challenged is because it deals with with situations and, and subject matter that was not considered appropriate for polite society during the late 1800s, this book deals with sex, um, with depression, mental illness, with oppressive marriage. Um, it is, and I'm looking at a at a um, a blog over here that is called the Book Maven's blog, and on and she says that this is the story of a woman's struggle with oppressive social structures. And it received much public contempt at its first release and basically kind of disappeared from the um, from the spotlight. I mean, I, it, it was banned. It was taken out of, of libraries. It was not taught in school until, interestingly enough, it gained popularity in the 1960s, about six decades after its first publication. Now, one of the reasons that I... I love this book is where it's set. It's set in a favorite place, um, New Orleans, Louisiana, um, and particularly on a a vacation spot across the, the, the lake called Grand Isle. The manner that this book is written in is of an interesting style. It's kind of a languid, slow style. It kind of reminds me of a summer evening in New Orleans, and it deals with not overtly, but kind of underlying tones of of um, sexual awakening, which is exactly why it was banned. And it, I'm not going to give away any endings, but I, I have used this book to talk so much with students about women's roles and and women being suppressed in society and how women will go to great lengths to break out of of that. So anyway, The Awakening is just, I love it. I would definitely recommend it. But one of the things about The Awakening is if you're looking for something to excite you, to keep you awake at night, this is not your book. Because it is, the style of it is very lulling. Gotcha. Do you think that it experienced a resurgence in the 1960s because that was the era of free love and women, you know, after 
the 1950s and the housewife and the leave it to beaver era mm-hmm. um, after Betty Friedan wrote the feminine mystique and, and women began to really rebel. You think that's why it experienced the resurgence at that time in the 1960s? I think that probably more women were beginning to look at texts at that time, older texts that, that showed a, a spirit, a sexual freedom that had been pretty much tamped down until then and she became popular again most of her stories deal with some sort of feminine or sexual um, oppression one of her stories that I teach every year if I can is Desiree's baby which deals with racism and oppression and um, and and has one of those surprise endings that kind of slaps you upside the head. Now, the awakening does that too. It it has an ending that you do not expect, which hopefully will encourage someone to read it. But if if any of our listeners read it and have questions, give me a shout out because I've taught it and I might can help you get over some bumpy spots. That that is good to know. I actually think I have a copy. Of, I think you have my copy. Yeah. Oops. I have so <laughs> many copies of your books. That's because every time you come to visit, you tote out a basket full of books. Okay. Well, we're going to change the subject on that and just talk about my book now. Okay. Well, so what's yours? <laughs> so my first book is The Color Purple by Alice Walker. And I would like to point out before I really get started that actually... Every single one of my books that I chose for this episode, they are all Southern books. They are all books in the Southern American literature canon. Um, And I'm starting with the newest published and working my way backward in time. So The Color Purple by Alice Walker, it is a 1982 epistolary novel that centers around Black women in the Deep South. And she actually won the Pulitzer for fiction the year after it was published. And Alice Walker in 1983 was the first black woman to ever win the prize. uh, Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. For the color purple. So most of the story takes place in Georgia in the 1930s. And this book is one of the most frequently challenged and banned books in recent American literature. Um, I mean, it's on up there with Catcher in the Rye. Uh, if if you don't know, Catcher in the Rye is the most frequently challenged and banned book in American literature history. Um, we didn't talk about Catcher in the Rye because if you watch or listen to our first episode, you know I hate it. So <laughs> I didn't want to talk about it. And I'm not crazy about it either. So that one didn't make our list. Yeah. So, but it's it's on up there with the Catcher in the Rye as far as how frequently it has been challenged and banned. Um, in American literature, and that is because it has depictions of violence. Um, It's been challenged due to its portrayal of female sexuality and homosexuality. And there have also been many criticisms of this book because there are some that believe that it depicts black men in a very unfavorable way. All of the men in the novel, save one, are incredibly abusive, both verbally and physically. Um, 
And Alice Walker has talked about how she was not trying to hold up this book as, you know, black men as a monolith and say, this is how all black men are. She was telling an individual life story of these black women living in the American South. And really, it's the story of how these black women endure. They endure everything that they have to face, including the violence that is perpetrated against them by their husbands and boyfriends and and all of that. Um, Now, I usually don't like epistolary novels. Um, I like this one, and I like Dracula, and that's about it (laughs) as far as novels that are written in the form of letters. But The Color Purple is different in that all of the letters, they're actually prayers. They all start out as Dear God. And it is, um, uh, I always forget how to pronounce her name, either Celie or Celie, if you know the correct way to pronounce it, because I've only ever read it. I've never heard it spoken. Um, I want to say it's Celie. Um, But that main character, she is writing to God. All of her letters, other than the ones she writes to her sister, Nettie, um, all of her letters begin with Dear God. And I think that it gives the reader a very intimate connection with the protagonist because we are seeing not just her inner monologue we're seeing her monologue to what she sees as a higher power um so i i love this book i love that it shows the long battle across more than 30 years of how our protagonist Celie and her sister Nettie grow to be in control of their own lives they find love they find safety And the novel speaks of women's ability, particularly black women's ability to endure, to have this extraordinary endurance, even in the face of male-driven violence and even in the face of a society that disenfranchises them. Um, More than anything, I love this book because there is a character. Her name is Shug, like short for sugar, Um, but Shug and Suge has very, what what to me, when I was a young person reading this, very interesting ideas about God. So, like I said before, Salih keeps writing all these letters, dear God, dear God, dear God. And she sees God as this male-type figure that has control over her life. And yet in her life, every other male figure is incredibly controlling and abusive. And so you can see that she has an issue with reconciling her view of God with these very violent and abusive male figures in her life. And Shug, who, I won't give any spoilers, but Shug is very important. Um, (laughs) But Shug is the one to tell Salih, hey, like, you don't have to see God as a man. Like, God doesn't have to be the equivalent of this violent, abusive, controlling, demanding male figure in your life. You can find God within. God can be in everything. And I remember reading that as a young girl and thinking, oh, that's amazing. I love that. Um, So The Color Purple by Alice Walker, absolutely phenomenal. Also not a book to read if you're looking for feel-goods throughout. The feel-goods come at the very end. You have to wait through the whole novel because most of the novel, I mean, starting from the first page, um, most of the novel is very sad 
and, uh, and, and difficult to, it's, it's difficult to carry that sort of stuff. Um, so, so yeah, that is my, my first band or challenged book that I had on my list. And I love Alice Walker, um, in the way that she explains and portrays the black woman's journey. One of the, the short stories that I have taught several times um, by Alice Walker is Everyday Use. And, and she really gives an insight into that difficulty that not just black women have had as seeing God the way God is portrayed to most of us who've come up in the Bible Belt as a father to, you know, to justify that with possibly abusive father figures. So that's really, um, it's been a long time since I've read The Color Purple. I might have to revisit that one. Yeah. Okay, so my second one is is a favorite um, that a lot of people are going to associate more possibly with the movie that was made, but the book is The Kite Runner by Khaled Hosseini, published in 2003. I have taught this book over and over again in AP literature. This book has been challenged. It has been banned um, almost since it was released. Uh, The Kite Runner was, in 2017, it was the fourth most challenged book, according to the American Library Association. It was challenged for sexual violence, and Islamophobia fueled some of the challenges. Um, it was appeared in the top 10 most banned book list for 2014 for offensive language unsuited to its age group. In 2012 for homosexuality, homosexuality for offensive language, religious viewpoints. The Kite Runner is the story of, it's a coming of age story of this young boy in Afghanistan. Um, whose name is Amir. His father is a wealthy businessman, and it is the story that of his growing up, and they're having to leave Afghanistan with the rise of the Taliban. Um, the, the, my first introduction to this book was so unusual because your dad read it first. We were... Um, looking for something to read. And, you know, your dad's not a novel reader. He reads a lot and he reads widely, but novels are not the top of his list. But he picked up The Kite Runner and he read it. And then he gave it to me and he said, you need to read this book. So I'm reading this book and anybody who's read it will know, and I think it's chapter seven. When you get to chapter seven, it's it's a shock. It is a shock. It's a heartbreak. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. But when I read chapter seven, if, if that's the chapter it is, I slammed the book shut and I looked at him and I said, why did you tell me to read this? And he said, I know exactly where you are. I know exactly where you are. And in teaching this, I have told students before we started, you're going to love this book. You're going to hate this book. You're going to cry over this book, but in the end, it's all worth it. And, you know, most students do not interrupt my classes. 
they know better than to open my door, but I have had AP students. I can think of one in particular who opens the door during another class, tears streaming down her face oh. and said, Miss Stansel, why did you make me read this? Oh. <laughs> and then, you know, and, and said, but I love it. And this book is, there is hope, but there is so much heartache. But this book offended so many people. And I think it offended them. I think it offended Americans in 2003 because it was published so quickly on the heels of the tragic World Trade Center um, situation. I think that it offended people because of its content. I think it also woke people up to their own prejudices and forced them to see people of other religions through very human eyes, whereas they didn't want to. And that's the hallmark of a great book. Um, Khaled Husseini is actually a physician. I did not know that. Yes. Oh He's my a goodness. doctor. And he has, he has written two other books um, very similar to The Kite Runner, um, I've read A Thousand Splendid Sons, and it messed me up even more than The Kite Runner. The, the A Thousand Splendid Sons is written from, a, it's a very similar book written from a female perspective, which is a completely different um, Afghani experience mm -hmm. than that of a young boy. But anyway, so The Kite Runner will break your heart, but if you haven't read it, you should read it because it's amazing. Ooh. Awesome. Okay, what's your next one? All right, so my next one, we are going back in time. So we started out in 1982. Now we are going back to 1960 with To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And I think that a lot of people are going to be very surprised to hear that To Kill a Mockingbird has been so frequently challenged in the American South uh, because... Now, modern times, it is on almost every single summer reading list ever. It is one of the most beloved works of Southern American literature of all time, um, at least in the public school system. Right, um, but I still think it gets challenges. I think that people are still afraid of the content of this book, and I think that when you start talking about who challenges it and when and why, that's the shocker. Yeah. Exactly. So just, just a few things about To Kill a Mockingbird, just to refresh everybody's memory. Um, it, it also won the Pulitzer Prize for literature. Um, it was written by Harper Lee, who is a native of our state, a native of Alabama. The narrator is Jean Louise Finch, better known by her nickname Scout. And it is at the same time what's known as a Bildungsroman, which is just a fancy word for coming of age story. That's the literary term for that genre. Any time where you have the you know, psychological growth of a protagonist from youth or child into someone who's a little bit older or more knowledgeable or grown, that's a Bildungsroman. But it's also somewhat autobiographical. Even though it's not purely an autobiography, Harper Lee did loosely base this story on something that happened in her hometown in Alabama, something that she, as a younger person, actually observed. So 
This book has been used in classrooms to teach about courage, about standing up for what's right, even when other people criticize you for it and call you names for it. It's been used to teach about compassion for people who are different from you and to teach about gender roles and gender norms. Because if you remember anything about the book, Scout is a little bit rough and tumble. She is not your typical girly girl. And her father, Atticus, is not your typical Southern man. Um, so those are just a few of the things that the book tries to tackle. This book has been challenged numerous times for its use in public school classrooms due to its use of racial slurs. It has also been challenged just for general use of profanity and its discussions of rape and incest. So these are all very heavy topics to have in a coming-of-age story, right? Many people who have challenged this book have said that its use of racial slurs might increase racial division in the South, and of course, in reading it in school, may upset some Black readers, right? So a lot of people have objected to the way that this novel, this novel's depiction of how Black people are treated by members of a very racist white community in Alabama during the Great Depression, right? I still think, you know, and, and I can only speak from the perspective of a Southern white woman. So I, I understand fully that if there is a student that says this book bothers me because of the use of these words, and I don't want to read it because it seriously upsets me, I completely understand that and respect it. However, I think that To Kill a Mockingbird is an incredibly important book for young white students in the American South. And I think that it's important because they need to see literature portray depictions of real life situations in which their people were seriously the bad guys. Like I said before, this is somewhat autobiographical. This situation, and that situation would be, you know, Mayella UL, or however you say her name. I know it's Mayella. <laughs> she <laughs> accuses Tom Robinson, who is a black community member, of rape or sexual assault. And she falsely accuses him. She is downright lying. And her lies, her sins, ultimately cause Tom to pay the ultimate price. So her lies, her need to control the matter, her white sin is what ultimately costs Tom. And we know that these sorts of things still happen in 2020. We all saw the video where a white woman in Central Park said that she was going to call the police and tell them that an African-American man was threatening her life. She knew what that meant. She knew what that meant because we all see these portrayals in literature and history where people are more interested in protecting the reputation of a white woman than protecting the life of a black man. And I think white readers need to see that in literature. They need to see that we have to challenge lies, challenge attempts to protect the white ego 
over protecting the lives of all of our community members, regardless of the color of their skin. And so for that, if a black student, if I were a teacher, which I'm not, but if I were a teacher and a black student said, this book makes me really uncomfortable and I don't want to read it because it uses racial slurs very frequently, I would say, that okay, that is your choice. I understand it. I respect it. But I think that this this book is important for white readers to see, you know, portrayed in a story, the reality of the fact that white communities were oppressors and still are. Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. It has been my experience. Now, I've never taught To Kill a Mockingbird because that's usually taught in ninth grade and I teach 11th and 12th grade. I have taught um, Huck Finn before, which also uses racial slurs and I have taught um, of mice and men which uses racial slurs and I have had students who told me that students of color who said that they were very uncomfortable with that and and I asked them to to give me a chance to see how we handled it to see if we handled it in a way that made them feel you know comf not comfortable with it but to see that it was handled with respect I think that in literature, a lot of times white people are portrayed as the saviors or the civilizers. And and that I, I believe that was an agenda. But I also see in a lot of classic literature that white savior um, being called out as not being a savior. And I think that so much depends on how a teacher approaches that sort of subject matter. I, I've we talked about how much we hated Heart of Darkness, but Heart of Darkness, one of its saving graces is that it calls out that white civilizer, white savior complex as wrong, mm -hmm. and actually shows it as a symbol of barbarity. Mm -hmm. That you know. Who are we to think that because we're white, we're the only ones who can civilize, Christianize, Americanize, whitewash some other culture? And, and to call that out is, is necessary. A lot of books that um, like To Kill a Mockingbird that show the white um, culture as as the less worthy mm -hmm. are so important as the villain it like as the villain you, you don't need the, the same way as in you know I, I just talked about the color purple um i i saw uh, a counter criticism to so, someone talking about how people have said oh how could you portray black men in this light alice walker why would you write about black men this way and alice walker basically said we don't always have to have men as the heroes. Sometimes we have to portray women overcoming things that are done to them by men. And that's just reality. And so in To Kill a Mockingbird, we, we see a portrayal of a white community in Alabama as the villains. I mean, Atticus is telling Scout throughout. He's like, number one, we don't say these words. Number two, we have to understand that once we get to know people, a, a lot of us are the same. And, you know, that's regardless of if you're, you're Tom Robinson, if you're Boo Radley, if you're Atticus. 
And he is telling Scout that the rest of their community has blinded themselves to that reality. They are the villains. They have created a society that is wrong. And I think that that is very important for young, particularly young, white readers to understand that, like, you may see books in which, especially in classic books, in which white people are the heroes. And guess what? For most of the rest of the world, we are not. <laughs> For most of the rest of the world, we are the villains. And I think that the sooner that white people say, you know what? We have, our people have done a lot of rotten crap. The sooner you admit that to yourself, the easier it is to overcome it and move forward in solidarity with our minority brothers and sisters to make the world a better place. And seek to learn as much as you can about someone else's experience is so important. Um, one other controversial little tidbit about To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, there are a lot of people who do not think that Harper Lee wrote that book. Did do you they, know that? I did not know that. Do they think Truman Capote wrote it? A lot of people think that Truman Capote wrote it. Or and and it's possible that he did have some serious input into um, the you know what inspired it or how she wrote it or or whatever. If you've read Truman Capote, in my opinion, and this is my own humble opinion, if you've read Truman Capote and you've read To Kill a Mockingbird, they're not the same. Mm-hmm. They're not the same. But a lot of people, but they were friends. Harper Lee and Truman Capote were very good friends. So there are a lot of people who want to attribute that work by a Southern woman to a man. Yes. Kind of burns my britches a little bit, but, and I don't think that's true, but, but that's just another little piece of, of news about that book. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll go ahead and say, even though it has not been nearly as challenged or contested as To Kill a Mockingbird, if you haven't read Go Set a Watchman, which is the sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird, wasn't even published until, what, 2015 or something, something like, like that? Yeah. Like, not long ago. Also read Go Set a Watchman because it talks about how, you know, in, in, in To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch is set up as the hero. Some might even say, and this is a further criticism, some might even say he's set up as a white savior in To Kill a Mockingbird. In Ghost Set a Watchman, Scout, as an adult, is forced to face a reality about her father that we, as readers who grew up idolizing Atticus Finch, are also forced to face. And it is just... Harper Lee just wants to hit you in the face with reality, I think. I think that's what she wants to do. She wants to say, oh, you have an idealized version of your community. It's actually not good. Oh, you have set up a hero on a pedestal. He's actually not as good of a person as you think he is. I think that's what she's, she's saying. She says, question your community's values, question your heroes. I think that's her, her controversial message. A great message. It is a wonderful message. And something that that keeps readers and everybody else on their toes. Oh, yeah. All right. So I will stop babbling because I could literally I could literally go on about To Kill a Mockingbird all day. And I could also <laughs> complain about Southern white communities all day. And, and so. 
And that is a much beloved book. It is so many people remember that book. I talk to seniors all the time and the only book that they can remember as seniors that they have read over the course of their high school years is To Kill a Mockingbird. It makes such an impression on them. Okay, so I'm going to go with my last Mm -hmm. challenged banned book by an absolute icon in the literary world. Um, My last book is I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. Um, This was published in 1969, and it is the first of a seven-volume series that is autobiographical um, and about Angela's life. This book was banned um, after being approved for public school curriculum in the early 1980s. Angela's book faced its first challenge just a few years later. In 1983, 37 years ago, it was banned in the state of Alabama. Oh, wow. Yes, it was banned by the Alabama State Textbook Committee because it determined that it incited bitterness and hatred towards white people. This book deals with graphic depictions of rape, Mm. of racism, of sexuality. And let's just go ahead and say that books are banned because their content makes someone uncomfortable. Most of the time they are banned because whatever makes somebody uncomfortable should make them uncomfortable. And so when you read about the, about Maya Angelou's life, her childhood, knowing that it begins when she's three and she and her older brother are sent to Stamps, Arkansas to live with their grandmother and she is abused, um, as an eight-year-old, she's raped as an eight-year-old, and that becomes an overwhelming visual for most readers, and and it's very uncomfortable because it's horrific, and people don't want to face the reality that those things really happen, and they don't want their children to read about those experiences. The problem with that is is that so many children who read these books in schools have experienced those exact same situations in their own lives. And and yes, it can be upsetting, but it also can be very relatable to some of those children. There are so many kids who read and they see portions of their own lives in the autobiographies of people on the shelves of their school library. Mm. They see parts of their own life and they realize this didn't just happen to me. This isn't just my horror. This is someone else's horror too. And um, so I think that it's really important that those books be available to kids. Um, Of course, my Angela's writing It's beautiful, it's lyrical, it's very honest and raw, and it's been a lot of years since I read this book, but it still, it still speaks volumes about, you know, the female black experience in, in the South. 
And I am so glad that you included this one. This one was my runner-up. I, I wanted to include I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, but I didn't want to have too many books on my list so our <laughs> podcast episode wouldn't be so long. Uh, so I'm really glad that you included this one. I, I want to go back to what you said before. Okay. When you were talking about how the reason that a lot of these books are banned and challenged is because something in them makes them uncomfortable. And that usually if something is making you uncomfortable, that's because it should. Something, something that you're reading is speaking to something in you that you probably need to deal with or think about. And so I, I would like to encourage myself, number one, because this is... This is a wonderful self-examination technique, but also anyone else listening, if you're reading something and something strikes you as just like, ugh, that's wrong, or oh, I don't want to think about that, or that makes me super uncomfortable, or that makes me angry, sit with it. Sit with it for a minute and, and think about why. Like if someone says, you know, just going back to things like from To Kill a Mockingbird, if someone says something about a racist white community or something that white people have done, like white people are this way, and your immediate reaction is to get angry and to get defensive, think about why. Why? Why? Why does that make you angry? Why does that make you offensive or make you defensive? Do, is it because something about it rings true? Is it because it is something that you've never personally seen or experienced? So you have no idea what this author is talking about. If you're a man and a woman writes something and says, like, men do this, a man did this, blah, blah, blah. And your first thought is, well, not all men are like that. Like, why? Why, why do you immediately jump to a defensive stance? What Let's just you, go ahead and say, what? Emily, that some yeah. people jump to that defensive stance because that jacket fits a little too tightly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that it's, it's, it's a wonderful tool that we have in literature, that things that we read when they make us angry, and it could make you angry for a really good reason. That's another thing to think about. If you read something and it just lights a fire under your butt, you are probably passionate about that cause or that situation. When I know that when I read about, you know, in anything in literature where someone who has a mental health issue or is living with a mental illness is mistreated, I become enraged, absolutely livid, and I want to do everything I can to fight the fictional character that is mistreating this person, right? So that, that reading that helped me to identify what I'm passionate about changing in this world. You know, I, I read things in which um, people who have immigrated to this country and might not speak English, I read stories in which those people are mistreated or made fun of or taken advantage of. And I want to champion against the meanies that are making life difficult for our immigrant population in the United States. That's why I was a, an interpreter for so long. Reading stories like that helped me to identify part of my purpose in life because those things made me uncomfortable and angry. So 
just all, all that blabbing to say, <laughs> think, think about, sit with, get close to what makes you uncomfortable. Right. Another thing that I want to say about, I know why the caged bird sings, is um, one of the thematic things that runs through this book is the importance of literacy, of mm. reading, and of words mm. for Maya Angelou. She, reading and writing saves her. And obviously, I would think that <laughs> literacy and and the work and the power of text helps people to cope. It helps me to cope. It's we've talked about that before, and and that's one of the thematic threads that goes through that book. Yes. So there you go. Definitely. All right. I, I I'm gonna go ahead and throw out there. I have gotten numerous uh, comments from a lot of our listeners saying that we don't need to edit out as much because what what we talk about and what we blab on about <laughs> in between <laughs> in between the books, all of that conversation, that's where the real you know meat and potatoes is of our of our talks. And I've had numerous people say, "Hey, you need to go full on Joe Rogan style and just leave all of that stuff in there." Because we want to hear all of that. We want to hear you go full nerd on all these books. So I'm I'm not going to edit a lot of this stuff out. I'm just going to leave it in. Um, and you guys will have to tell us what you think about. Yeah, absolutely. I actually blab about these books. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what we do. One thing that I, I do want to mention, um, that if you're not aware that since 1982, there has been a Banned Books Week. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, so, so Banned Books Week for this year, and we missed it, Emily. It was September 27th to October the 3rd. Um, but Banned Books Week, and I'm looking at a website, is an annual event celebrating the freedom to read. And it talks about books that have, it's usually the last week in September, it brings together the entire book community, librarians, booksellers, publishers, journalists, teachers, readers, in shared support of the freedom to read and to uh, to seek and express ideas, even those that are considered unorthodox or <clears throat> unpopular. And, you know, I think that we need to be aware that books have been that the books have been banned and people have tried to limit or censor our access to other people's ideas to their thoughts and their feelings which is just wrong you know i came from i had a strange literary upbringing as mm -hmm. i have told you before mm -hmm. um my mother your grandmother was a tremendous reader she read widely now, toward the end of her life, she kind of got into a, a very comfortable pattern um, of one type of fiction, but she had read so widely. And I was a slow reader when I was just learning to read. I had a hard time with reading. I'm still a slow reader, but I love to read. But the thing that mom did was she encouraged me to read everything. Um, she was only only a little bit concerned about I guess what you would call reading appropriateness because 
I remember as a kid, she let me read things that were probably not age appropriate. Um, I remember being eight and wanting to read Gone with the Wind because it was on the shelf. And she made me wait until I was 10. to. Re- so I read Gone with the Wind when I was 10. That same year, I read Jaws. Oh, my goodness. I was 10 years old. I remember it was in a bag that I took to a neighbor's house. And the I, I had gone to play with a neighbor kid. And um, the dad saw that book peeking out of my bag and said, why do you have this book? And I said, well, I'm reading this book. This book is is completely inappropriate for a 10-year-old. And, and he even called my mom. And she said, yeah, she's reading it. She's reading what she wants to read. And so, as as I grew up, my books were not censored. After I got to be about 10 years old, if it was on the shelf, it was open season. And I don't know, what, was, what do you recall your experience of growing up with literature? What did we do? Incredibly similar. Incredibly similar. Anything I wanted to read, I could read and nothing was off limits. And I am better for it. Like, I I remember being a little girl and we would read Little House in the Big Woods together. Mm-hmm. I also remember being a little girl and checking out books on Norse mythology from the library. And you and Dad being like, good. <laughs> like, that's awesome. Um, along with my little Bible stories. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I read anything that I wanted. And... I think that that's so important. So often kids are driven away from reading because they're not allowed to explore what they want to explore. So much of reading begins with curiosity. It's a freedom. You are free to explore new worlds through these books. And if your world is constricted by authority figures who say, oh no, you can only read what I approve for you, that is another form of control against which kids are going to rebel. That's true. So if you are if you are constricting the reading world of your child, I firmly believe that you are running the risk of driving them away from reading because they are going to see reading as another form of adult control and another way in which they have to toe the line, color inside the box, and not explore who they are as a person. Right. So, so I am very thankful. I just, I just read whatever I wanted, whatever I wanted. Of course, as a teacher, let me say that the quickest way to get kids to check books out of the library is to tell them, oh my gosh, you don't need to read this book because it is full of things you don't need to know about. Mm-hmm. And then you just stand out of the doorway and watch they take them out <laughs> and watch them run over each other to get to the library to check those books out. And you know, that's what happened. And I know this we're this is a little bit off topic, but that's what happened Whatever. with Joe Rogan style. That's what Joe we're Rogan style. <laughs> when when so many people said, and we didn't even include Harry Potter in the banned books, but Harry Potter has been banned from several cultural groups over the course. And I remember very clearly when you were reading them as a kid, a lot of people, particularly people we went to church with, said, oh, you you shouldn't let your kids read these books because they have witchcraft and they have whatever. 
Um, but a lot of kids read those books simply because they knew that there were some adults who didn't want them to read those books. Oh, yeah. And it was like a magnet mm-hmm. to them. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So now we are really off topic now, but I'm going to pass on back <laughs> to, to my last uh, band book. And it might be my, my favorite of the three. I love all three of these books. Love them. Um, love The Color Purple. Love To Kill a Mockingbird. But this third one, we're going all the way back to 1930, it's when it was published, is As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. This is the quintessential Southern Gothic novel. A lot of people, when they think of Southern literature, they think of Faulkner. Like, he's, he's who comes to mind, usually. And I will go ahead and say that this is one of those books, I love it, but it is not easy. This book is very difficult to read. Faulkner's not easy. Faulkner's not easy. Um, and I'll go into why. <laughs> but uh, this book has multiple points of view. It has a total of 15 narrators. 15 narrators. That's one five, not 50. That would be insane. <laughs> but it is told by the Bundren family as they transport the body of their wife and mother, Addie, to be buried in her hometown of Jefferson, Mississippi. The reason that this book is so difficult to read and difficult to adapt, I think I told you before we started, this book has only been adapted once into a movie. James Franco tried. James Franco failed. This It is too hard to adapt into a movie because of how many narrators it has and because of the style in which Faulkner wrote it. Faulkner used the stream of consciousness technique as well as, you know, with that stream of consciousness, inner monologues. So most everything that you're reading throughout this book, they are the inner thoughts, the inner feelings of all of these different 15 characters. Um, I was initially attracted to this book, not only because it is the Southern novel, but also this book has crazy names. We have Darl, Cash, Dewey Dill, Vardaman, Eula, there's a boy named Jewel. Like, it's just <laughs> the names. When I heard these names, I was like, I have to read this book. That's crazy. Um, but because Faulkner uses the stream of consciousness technique and uses an inner monologue, he is able to voice in a very unique way the individual grief of each of these characters over the death of Addie. So why was this book banned, Emily? Why was this book banned? Well, yeah. ha ha ha. It has a lot of obscenities. <laughs> ah. It, um, one of the characters, Dewey Dell, that is a girl. <laughs> That's a girl name. Okay. Um, Dewey Dell is pregnant throughout the book and throughout the entirety of the book, even though she is dealing with the weight of her mother's death. All of her inner monologues are essentially saying, I do not have time to grieve because I need an abortion. And so throughout the book, in all of Dewey Dell's chapters, she is actively seeking an abortion. And as you might imagine, 
most people in the evangelical community and, and in other communities that are anti-abortion, they did not like that. They did not like that portrayal. But most notably, and even more so um, for religious groups in general, whether they're evangelical or Christian or not, this book questions the existence of God and explores what happens to humans when they die. Um, it has thoughts about reincarnation and questioning whether God even exists. You know, the questions that everyone has when a loved one dies. And all of those questions are written about in different unique points of view, whether it's from little Vardaman's point of view, who I, I think in the book is he's a child. He's, he's just a kid all the way up to Cash's point of view, who is the oldest son, and thinks about the death of his mother in a completely different way. Um, and so really, in their own way, each one of these characters is coming to terms throughout the book, not only with the death of their mother, but also with their own mortality and existence. And Faulkner symbolizes that by the fact that this entire family is having to lug the heavy wooden coffin of Addie Bundren across the Mississippi countryside. Her coffin, her body, is literally a symbol of the burden that her death has become to her family, physically, psychologically, and emotionally. And it is just, this book is beautiful. It is beautiful, and it is hard to read. <laughs> I will say that. Right. It's a real good book. It is difficult to get through. It is hard to juggle all the points of view. It was banned because it has all that crap <laughs> that I just blabbed about. But if you, if you want a book that will give you interesting internal questions about what death is, what mortality is, what existence is, look no further. Well, all right, Emily. Um, Beatrice is telling me that it's time for our podcast to be done. I have heard her voicing that fact on and off throughout the last 15 minutes or so. Yes, she is, I, she is at we, my side. Yeah, I guess we have gone over, um, so we can go ahead and wrap it up. Um, hey, shout out to the music that brought us in and will take us out. That's your brother, Oliver Stancil, um, with that sweet sweet intro music mm -hmm. um and why don't you go ahead and let people know where they can find you online i am online on facebook at ann ferguson stancil and i'm on instagram at lulu the lit lover and i am online at oh i'm on twitter at emily c underscore more i'm also on instagram Emily Caroline Moore, all one word, or I have my book blog and also the book blog for this podcast, which is at read underscore more underscore books. And of course, more has two O's. It's my last name. Um, and then very recently, I have started blogging at emilycarolinemore.com, where I talk about the writer's life and uh, literary craft and things like that. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, so until next time, Emily. Until next time. This one was really fun. I enjoyed this one. This, this one was fun. Who, who would have thought that, you know, 
mother and daughter can sit around and talk about such heavy topics, but that's literally all we do. <laughs> kind of is. Well, all right. I guess I will talk with you later. Have a good one. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.